Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today's episode is an HHTR flashback favorite. We're exploring kitchen wisdom talking about food as connection, creation, and celebration in the heart of the home. Let's join a conversation that I had earlier in June of 2017 with Kenji Lopez-Alt. My next guest is Kenji Lopez-Alt. He is a food science writer and the managing culinary director of SeriousEats.com author of The Food Lab, Better Cooking Through Science, which is a New York Times bestseller, and the James Beard Award-nominated column, The Food Lab. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including The Wall Street Journal, The Boston Globe, Wired Magazine, and Men's Health. He lives in San Francisco with his wife, Adriana, and two dogs, Hamon and Shabu. His first book, The Food Lab, Better Cooking Through Science, is available wherever books are sold at nearly 1,000 pages with 300 foolproof recipes. It's a grand tour of the science of cooking explored through popular American dishes, illustrated in full color with thousands of photographs, charts, graphs, and do-at-home experiments. Ooh, I like it. Welcome, Kenji. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I am a, I'm a foodie. My family's a foodie. We like to cook. We like to eat. We like to hang out and talk about food. Excellent. Excellent. So, so let's talk about the mythology of some of the cooking techniques that are out there. There are a lot okay. of myths, right? There are a lot of myths, yeah. Um, I don't know. Where do you want to start? I mean, I guess we're, we're in Texas right now, so we can start with uh, some of the myths around steaks because there oh. are a lot of those. Yes. Let's go for it. <laughs> All right. I mean, you, you hear a lot of things. Um, one, one of the big ones is you'll hear is that um, is that you should only flip your steaks once while you're cooking them. Um, and I think the idea for this comes from um, comes from the idea that people think by flipping it multiple times, 
you don't get as nice a sear on it, um, or maybe the inside doesn't cook as evenly. Um, but it's actually it's actually quite the opposite, um, and and you can prove this uh, both experimentally just by doing it yourself. You know, take two steaks, put them on the grill. One of them just flip once while you're cooking, and the other one flip every thirty seconds or so. Um, and what you'll find is that the one that you're flipping. Um, frequently will actually uh, cook more evenly. That is, there's going to be less of that overcooked meat around the exterior. Um, it's going to cook more evenly than the ones that you flip only once. And it's also going to cook about 30% faster. Um, and on top of that, it's also going to develop a really nice crust uh, at just about the same rate. So it's actually better to flip your steaks multiple times. Although, you know, really in the end, I think the one rule about, about going to a, a backyard barbecue or backyard cookout is that you don't want to mess with the person uh, who's who's tending the fire because <laughs> I, I think they're, they're the ones in charge. So if they want to just flip it once, don't argue with them. Um, you know, with the other the other big one with steak is that people will always tell you, uh, and, and a lot of big chefs will tell you this too, is that you want to take your steak out of the fridge early and let it sit at, uh, let it come to room temperature before cooking. Um, and, you know, there, there's there's a couple problems there. Um, the, the first one is that if you have, if you've got a nice thick steak, and, I, you know, generally if I'm going to eat steak, which doesn't happen that often, but if I'm going to eat a steak, I want it to be a nice thick one. Um, you know, if, if you have a nice thick steak, it takes a very, very long time for it to actually come to room temperature. You can leave a steak out uh, from the fridge on your counter. You can leave it out on the counter for about two hours. Um, and it, internal, its internal temperature will only rise by about 10 degrees or so, which is not very much. Um, and and the, the, the more important part to consider is that um, when you're searing a steak, um, the, th the thing that helps a, ste a steak sear fastest, um, the, the problem with searing a steak is not really the is beginning is not really the starting temperature. It's actually the uh, the starting moisture. So it's not about how how warm the surface of the steak is. It's about how dry the surface of the steak is. Um, to, to put it in perspective, um, even if you start with a steak that uh, is coming straight out of a fridge at 32 degrees, say the, the fridge at the coldest setting, 32 degrees, um, the amount of energy it takes to bring that steak from 32 degrees up to 212 degrees um, Fahrenheit, which is when the water on the surface is going to start uh, evaporating. The amount of energy it takes to bring it up from 32 to all the way to 212, um, it takes it takes 50 times more energy to then uh, evaporate the moisture from the surface of that steak. And you can't really get any browning done until that moisture is evaporating. So honestly, the starting temperature of the steak is almost negligible. It really has to do more with the starting um, the surface moisture of the steak. So if you want to have the best steak ever, one that browns really efficiently so that you get a nice dark crust on it without overcooking the inside, um, you want to make sure it's dry. So if, if, you're, if you're starting with a fresh steak and you want to cook it right away, that means patting it dry with paper towels really well. Um, or better yet, if you, have, if, you, if you do a little bit of planning, uh, you can take that steak, put it on a rack, uh, and sit, set it in your fridge uncovered uh, overnight or even up to a couple nights um, so that the surface dries out. And then when you, when you have that steak, it's going to brown really fast, and it's going to be the best steak you've ever cooked. You know, I, I didn't know that about the moisture, but I did know about the multiple flipping. I am a multiple mm -hmm. flipper because I did oh, run that experiment myself. And oh, great. Yeah. I, I, I discovered that. Let's talk about eggs because this is another popular product that many of us um, uh, keep in our fridge for way mm -hmm. past that expiration date. What's, 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 <laughs> the story? what's the story with eggs and, and expiration dates? Well, you know, expiration dates, um, and, and this, is, this is true across the board for food, you know, expiration dates are always an approximation um, because it's, it's impossible for food manufacturers to know, um, A, well, you know, A, eggs are not all identical. They come, from, they come from different hens. They come from different parts of the country. They come from different hen houses. They're shipped in different ways. Um, so the eggs are not all identical. So it's really hard to give an exact expiration date across the board. And more importantly, you know, the eggs are treated differently in, in transport. So some of them might be kept a little bit colder. So one of, one of the um, supermarkets might have their fridge set a couple degrees colder. And then once you bring it home, you know, who knows how you're treating it. Maybe it takes you 
an extra hour to bring them home or an extra two hours, or maybe your fridge is colder than your neighbor's. So expiration dates are always really just a, um, just an approximation. Um, um, it, it, you know, they, they should really say best used by instead of, instead of expiration, um, I think. But, you know, the, the way you tell your eggs, um, the freshness of your eggs, um, the easiest way I know is to just put them into a cup of water. Um, and uh, so, you know, as eggs, you know, the, the eggshell seems like it's impermeable, but it actually, uh, it actually allows moisture to escape from the inside. So as eggs get older, uh, they do lose moisture at a pretty regular rate. Um, and what that means is that the, uh, the air bubble that's in the, the, that air pocket that's in the fat end of the egg, you know, when you boil an egg and you get that little dimple in the fat end, that's, yes. caused, by an air, that's caused by an air pocket in the fat end of the, uh, of the egg. And as the egg gets older, that air pocket gets bigger and bigger because the moisture leaves the egg. So when you put an egg in a glass of water, um, if it sinks to the very bottom uh, and lies flat on its side, um, that means that it's pretty fresh. Um, if it starts to stand up or even stand perfectly, you know, stand straight up with the uh, fat end on the top, that means that that air bubble has gotten pretty big and, uh, and, your, and your egg is uh, starting to get a little bit old. If it, if it completely floats to the top, then, then you probably want to get rid of it, maybe just throw it at your neighbor or something like that. But you, uh, you don't <laughs> want to use an egg that floats. Got it. I, you know, I did not know that. I, I, we we buy our eggs from our farmers market, right? And mm -hmm. they're not they are not date stamped. So I always say to the to the farmer, like, how long will these last? And he says, Oh, they're going to last you a month. And I'm like, A month? And he goes, Yeah, don't worry about it. And <laughs> oh, I'm eggs, like, Eggs last a very long time. They do. You know, even even eggs that you buy at the supermarket, um, you'll find. So the, um, the 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 expiration date that's stamped on the egg um, is typically it can be anywhere up to well, anywhere from zero to up to thirty days after the egg was placed in that carton. So that's already one month, and the eggs are actually allowed to be placed in that carton one month after they're up to thirty days after they're laid. Um, so. Even even according to the, the loosest government standards, eggs can be up to 60 days old and they're still fine. In reality, you know, eggs are going to last, will probably last up to three or four months in your fridge as long as you keep them cold. Wow. I, you know, this, this, is, this is good information. What about butter? You know, like some people keep their butter on the counter and some people mm -hmm. keep their butter in the fridge. What's the deal with that? Well, you know, keeping keeping butter on the counter is a good idea if you if you if you go through it regularly and you, and you say you have your toast or your English muffin every morning and you and you want to take that butter and you want it to be spreadable. Um, butter on the counter, you know, butter does go does go bad though. Um, a couple things can happen to it. It can go it can go rancid, um, which is uh, something that attacks um, the the fat molecules itself. It'll go rancid in the same way that uh, oil that's left uh, exposed to light or or too close to your stove will go rancid, and that kind of creates a sort of fishy smell to it. Um, butter also has a good amount of water in it um, uh, and protein. And, and both of those things can lead to uh, bacteria, um, bacteria or mold. So, so butter, butter, can, uh, butter can go bad, although, you know, it's, it's quite, quite high in fat. And particularly if it's salted butter, um, salted butter uh, is a pretty inhospitable environment for bacteria. So it'll, it'll last probably um, at least a week or so at room temperature uh, left out on the counter. But, you know, if you are the type of person who uses it every day, then, then you know who you are, and it's probably okay to leave it out on the counter. If, if, you only want, if, you, if you basically only use your butter for baking or things like that, then you probably want to keep it in the fridge. Got it. There is nothing like good soft butter, though, when you're buttering your toast or your veggies. Oh, yeah. oh it's good. <laughs> it's good. But, you know, many of us are scared to leave it out on the counter, so yeah. that, that's good to know. That's well, really like, good You know, know what I like to use um, at home is one of those, um, those inverted bells with the, with the water seals. You know, I, those those will keep your butter fresher much longer than um, than a butter dish with a with a cover will, because the butter dish allows a, a lot more air circulation. Um, you, uh -huh. you know the ones I'm talking about, right? Yes. Kind of yes. Soften the butter, put it in the bell, and put it upside down. Th those work a lot better than a regular butter dish. What What are some other myth busting tips? <laughs> 
Other myth-busting tips. Uh, well, let's see. You know, one, one thing I think people do uh, quite often is um, they cook their pasta in way too much water. Um, and, and this is something that you, um, you will hear all the time from um, uh, Italian chefs or other, other chefs on TV, um, that you should use a huge volume of pasta to cook your water, uh, uh, water to cook your pasta. I think most people will say you want about a gallon of water to cook a pound of pasta in. Um, this is, this is true if, uh, if you're cooking fresh pasta, uh, you do want to do this. Or if you're cooking a very, very sort of high-end brand of pasta that has been naturally dried and extruded uh, using traditional methods. Um, you know, one of the more, one of the very expensive high-end import brands, you, then you, you do want to use a large volume of pasta because they can, uh, they can expel uh, a lot of starch that will get them sticky. But most of the pasta you're buying in the supermarket, um, you know, your burrito or and, and any of your sort of standard American supermarket pastas, um, they don't need to be cooked in a lot of water because they don't actually release that much starch. Um, you can cook, a, you can cook um, pasta basically in just enough water to cover it. Um, and the other thing is that the water doesn't even really need to be boiling to begin with. You can put your pasta covered in tap water, put it on the stove uh, and bring it to a boil. And in blind taste tests, um, it comes out exactly the same as if you boiled it in a huge volume of water. Um, th there are other advantages, actually, to cooking in a small volume of water. You know, I, I come from California, where right now we're in the middle of a drought. Um, and so for me, using water is actually quite expensive because they, they, charge, you for your, they charge you quite a bit for your water these days. Um, so, so it's good. It saves me money. Um, it also saves energy because you don't have to bring a huge pot of water to a boil. Um, also time, obviously. Um, and, and more importantly, it, it'll, make your, it'll make your pasta taste better because, um, you, you know, you've heard the trick of taking uh, some, of the, some of the pasta water and adding it to the sauce um, while you're tossing the sauce with the pasta. Um, and, and the idea there is that the starch uh, that's released by the pasta as it's cooking, um, it gets into that pasta water. And then when you add that starch to the sauce, um, it's going to thicken it up um, in the same way that like a roux will thicken up a gravy. Um, uh, the starchy pasta water is going to help thicken up that sauce and get it to cling to the uh, cling to the pasta better. Um, and so, when you use a smaller volume of water, you actually get a much higher concentration of those uh, extracted ah. starches, and so it gets, it's going to make the sauce uh, cling to the pasta even better. So, when I cook pasta, small volume of water, um, I, and, it, and it works just much much better in almost every respect. We're going to need to go to a break, and when we come back, I would love to talk a little bit about using sound as a guideline for proper cutting and cooking techniques because I had not Great. heard of this. This is this is one of your other tips that uh, is available in your book, The Food Lab, Better Cooking Through Science. Um, to learn more about Kenji's work, please visit The Food Lab Recipes on Facebook. On Twitter, Kenji can be found at The Food Lab, and the website is KenjiLopezAlt.com. Wait, wait, wait. Before we take that break, I want to talk with you about money and happiness. I'm one of those folks who was deeply affected by the recession of 2008, and I've been spending the past few years slowly recovering. One of the best products I've found to help me achieve this is Lightstream, a division of SunTrust Bank. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.89% APR with AutoPay, which is significantly lower than the average credit card interest rate of more than 18% APR. This really helped me lower my monthly payments and clean up debt. Here are some nifty things that I love about Lightstream.com. It rewards people with good credit with a lower interest rate and no fees. The online application process is easy. And you can get a loan between $5,000 and $100,000, and the funds can even be available as soon as the same day. And here's the happy part. Listeners of my show will get a special discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. 
the only way to get this discount is to visit lightstream.com slash harvesting. Once again, that's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash harvesting. And here's the legal mumbo jumbo. All loans are subject to credit approval. Rates include a 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash harvesting for more information. Now here comes the break. We'll be right back and that is a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to an HHTR flashback favorite. Let's return to the conversation with Kenji Lopez-Alt that I originally had in June of 2017. We're talking about eating our way to happiness with healthy foods and creative cooking. And with me now is Kenji Lopez-Alt. He is the Managing Culinary Director of SeriousEats.com and the author of The Food Lab, Better Cooking Through Science, which happens to be a New York Times bestseller. And he also um, writes the column, which has been nominated for a James Beard Award, the Food Lab. So, Kenji, you are giving us all kinds of myth busters about the foods and cooking techniques prior to our break. And now I want to talk about another one, and that is the use of sound. Great, yeah. Sound is, sound is very important in the kitchen. Talk about it. I mean, I know about like melons, <laughs> shaking your, you know, melons at the grocery store and, you know, this sort of thing, but are tapping on the melons, you know? Right, right, right. I don't think you want to shake your melons at the grocery store. No. Well, I uh, don't want to shake my melons at the grocery store, but the melons <laughs> that I might be purchasing, I, I <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Anyway, I do. <laughs> talk about sound. Um, you know, th- this is something that I learned very early on in my cooking career. Um, one, one of my very first cooking jobs, um, I was working at a restaurant in Boston um, and on the first day of that job, um, they, uh, I, you know, I was I was a line cook uh, in, on the Garde Manger station, and one of my jobs was to uh, slice chives. 
um, and I had to slice chives for every person on the line. So it was, a, you know, a lot of chives I had to go through. Um, and I was there slicing chives probably for about half an hour. Um, and then the chef's, chef walks by me, um, behind me, didn't even look down at my cutting board. But um, just as she's walking by, she says, Kenji, you're cutting those wrong. And um, she didn't even have to look. She just knew just by hearing the sound that the chives were making as I was cutting them. And then she looked at them, and, she, and sure enough, all the chives were kind of crushed instead of sliced. And so she um, she dumped all the chives into the garbage and, and showed me how to properly slice them, and I had to, and I had to start over again. Um, the, the, the thing I was doing wrong um, was that, you know, when, when you're trying to cut something very delicate, like, say, scallions or herbs um, or, or chives like that, um, if you have a sharp knife, no matter how sharp your knife is, um, if you don't give it enough lateral motion, um, you end up kind of crushing instead of slicing. Um, so, so if you go really straight up and down um, on a scallion, and you can try this at home with a sharp knife, just go straight up and down on a scallion, it will cut through, um, but you'll end up kind of rupturing a lot of, the, um, a lot of those scallion cells. Um, and this can, make the, this can make the scallion smell really, uh, really pungent and really strong, which is not really what you want. You want it to have a more sort of delicate and sweet aroma. Um, you don't want to crush those. You don't want to crush those cells. You want to slice through them cleanly. Um, so by using a lot of horizontal motion, um, you know, really slicing and pulling your knife backwards slowly across the uh, across the scallions or chives, um, you end up sli- uh, crushing fewer cells. You end up with much nicer looking slices, um, and they actually taste better as well. Um, so that, you know that that's one work, one case where if you, if you hear your you know if you hear that sort of like sound going on, yeah, yeah. Um, it means you're probably uh, you're probably not slicing with enough lateral motion because you really want it to see, sound more like, um, you know, like a like a ninja's razor blade uh, to the throat, something. A crisp <laughs> cut, like where like you're you're actually hearing the blade hit the wood or the or the the plastic. Yeah, yeah. No, I get um, it. I get it. And I, you know, I, I, I'm admitting that I am a a, a sloppy chopper. Clearly. <laughs> Well, wow. <laughs> I know. I, you know, my, my kids forgive me. My family forgives me. You know, it's like the, the food looks good, but I do notice the difference when I don't get a, a crisp cut. And I mm-hmm. attributed to that, to the, to the knives, not mm-hmm. the technique that well, I didn't have sharp knives. Part of it is the knives. Yeah. Part of it, you definitely do want a sharp knife to start with. Um, but even with the world's sharpest knife, if you don't, if you don't uh, pull across uh, the board and just go straight up and down, um, you end up with a, a crushed uh, you'll, you'll end up with crushed vegetables instead of instead of sliced vegetables. Um, the the other big place where where, where sound comes in into play every day um, when you're cooking is uh, is when you're sautéing or searing things. Um, and you know there's there's a big difference in the sound between something that is sizzling and fat, something you know something that um, is really searing and browning uh, versus something that is sort of steaming. Um, so for instance, if you're talking about like say um, a pork chop or like a, a chicken breast or something like that. Um, you, and you want to get some nice brown color on the outside. If you put it into your pan and you hear and you hear it kind of uh, uh, either if you, well, if you hear no sound at all, that's bad. But if you hear it kind of steaming and kind of sputtering instead of like a really sharp crackle, um, you know that your pan is probably not hot enough, and you, you want to take it out right away and wait for your pan to heat up a little bit more. Um, and, and similarly, say similarly, say you're um, sautéing some vegetables uh, to begin, like a soup or a stew or something like that. You've got you know carrots, onions, and celery. Uh, inside your Dutch oven, you're going to make a stew. You're going to make a stew, um, and you're cooking them in oil. Um, at the beginning, you're going to you're going to hear like a very gentle sort of sputtering and sizzling noise. Um, as the moisture in those vegetables starts to dry out, um, it's the the sound is going to get sharper and sharper and sharper until eventually it's going to be a really sharp sizzle, and that's the sound of frying. 
Um, and you know, and, and, and that's a really great audio cue, you know that at the point that it starts becoming that really sharp sizzle, um, that that's when the vegetables are going to actually start browning, because vegetables can't really brown until most of their moisture has been, uh, their surface moisture has been driven off. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 really, it's really good, because if, if you're over working on some other part of the kitchen, um, and you're very sort of keeping a lazy eye on the pot, you can use your ears and, and, and hear at what stage the vegetables are at. So once, the, once they start getting the sharp sizzle, you know, okay, my vegetables are starting to brown, and then you can decide, you know, do I want my vegetables to brown, or, or should I maybe go over there right now um, and start adding my other ingredients or adding my liquid to that pot? So this really talks about how we use our senses. You know, we know that the food and the senses is, of course, very integrated. But mm -hmm. in terms of preparing food, um, we really need to be using all of our senses. It's not just about, you know, sitting there stirring the stuff. It's really about paying attention in ways that we wouldn't normally think Absolutely, to pay yeah. attention, you know, like Absolutely. with our eyes or our nose. The sound is great, great, great tip. Any others? Well, you know, I mean, talking about talking about your senses, um, I think I, I think one just gen tip and tip in general is to really make sure that you do rely on your senses. And, and, and you know, a good a good recipe will tell you um, what you should be looking for or what you should be what you should be hearing for, because, you know, an anybody who cooks with just a timer, um, they're probably not going to end up with great results because no matter how accurate your timer is and no matter how well the recipe was written, um, there's just so many variables and you know, your stove is not exactly the same as the stove the recipe was tested on. Your pan's not exactly the same. Your onion is probably not the same as the onion that was that it was tested with. So no matter how well a recipe is tested, um, you're never going to nail down an exact amount of time uh, that something that is going to take to cook. So it's, it's, it's generally a pretty poor idea to, to, to rely on a timer to say when, like, your onions are sautéed enough. Um, you really do want to, to use all your senses and, and use your nose, use your ears. Uh, use your eyes and just pay, just pay attention to everything as it's going on. And, and, and the more you do this, the more sort of second nature it becomes. Um, so, you know, the first few times you're sauteing an onion, you might have to pay very careful attention with all of your senses. Um, later on, as you, get, as you get more and more used to it, um, you, you'll, you'll start to rely maybe whichever one's most comfortable for you. For me, it's, it's really my ears that I rely most on uh, for things like that. But you might find that your, your eyes are more reliable. But, but it'll become second nature as, as you practice it more. I'm going to practice the ear technique because it's not something, I mean, unless it's blaring, you know, like you, uh, you right. really hear something, you know, sort of going off the rails in the kitchen with the snap, crackle, pop. But right. the, or the, the or subtlety. The smoke alarm. Yes, or the smoke alarm. But it's the, 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 more, the more subtle aspect of this is what I, what I think you're talking mm -hmm. about. You mentioned about recipes. And I want to uh -huh. chat a little bit about your philosophy for recipe development because you mm -hmm. are a creative guy, right? You know, mm -hmm. you've uh, created a lot of recipes that are in your book. Um, what goes into developing a recipe? Um, well, it's, it's, it's a lot of things. You know, mo most of the recipes, particularly the ones in the book, um, the, the recipes in the book um, are, are all sort of classic American dishes. So there, there's nothing hugely surprising about what's, what's in there. Um, um, and, and, you know, and, and that was a very conscious decision because, I, you know, I see the recipes almost as sort of like the, the anchor point, the, the, the thing that you can connect to so that then you, it, help, it helps you understand the science around it a little bit better. Um, but, you know, when, when I'm developing a recipe, say I'm, say I'm looking for a recipe for meatloaf, um, you know, for me, first of all, the, the recipe I'm writing, there has to be a reason for it to exist. It can't just be um, an, another recipe just like all the other ones out there because there's already a, there's already tons of meatloaf recipes out there, you know. Um, so, but, but for me, a recipe, recipe development always begins with, always begins with research. Um, um, and that means, you know, in the case of meatloaf, it would mean, all right, look at, look, looking at the history of, of meatloaf. Um, and more importantly, looking at what position meatloaf, um, holds in the, in the minds, uh, and the palates of people across the country. Um, so often that'll mean, you know, going to social media and asking people, 
you know, what does meatloaf mean to you? Or what's your favorite kind of meatloaf? Or did you eat meatloaf growing up? Um, because when I'm, you know, when I'm developing a recipe for meatloaf, I, I, I don't take this sort of uh, modern chef approach where I'm sort of deconstructing and reconstructing and reinterpreting <laughs> it. Um, I want, I want my, the meatloaf, you know, and, and I think most of my readers want, if they follow a recipe for meatloaf, they want to come out with something that they instantly recognize as meatloaf. And it hits all those right sort of meatloaf, you know, it, it has a very high level of meatloafiness in that. Um, it, it, and, and, and so that means that you have to sort of respect the dish's orig- origins, um, respect its history, respect its place within um, the, uh, the, the cultural palate. Um, um, and, and, and from there, that's when you try and sort of start thinking, okay, well, where, you know, where can this recipe sort of be improved or maybe where, where can I um, optimize it? Uh, or, or sometimes it's how can I make it more foolproof um, um, or how can I make it more efficient? Um, and, and, and that's, that's sort of what I do. I, I, I come up with a sort of base set of parameters, like a, a great meatloaf must have these key qualities to it. Um, now, how do I optimize those things? Um, and, and that, and, 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 and what problems do people have with meatloaf? And that, that's really sort of where my testing process and recipe development process comes from. So, really it's about meaning you know like meatloaf with meaning yeah yeah i mean you know meatloaf meatloaf does have meaning to a lot of people oh my gosh yeah comfort (laughs) come on exactly exactly (laughs) and and you're not going to be comforted by uh by you 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 might be intrigued or challenged by a very chefy uh version of a meatloaf but you're probably not going to be comforted by it you want you want you know the the whole book and, and most of what i do is about home cooking and it's it's about making sure that you know, if you if you make this recipe, you're going to you're going to be happy with it. Um, and, and, you know, that's sort of, that's sort of my my philosophy on, 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 on healthy eating as well. You know, a lot a lot of people ask me, um, you know, the types of recipes you write, how like how are you not a blimp? Um, and, and the real answer is that, these I, you know, I, I write about macaroni and cheese and I write about meatloaf, but it's not like I eat those every day. Um, my, my real philosophy is that, you know, if for the one time a year or maybe two times a year that I'm going to make macaroni and cheese or meatloaf, um, I want that to be the best macaroni and cheese and the best meatloaf I can possibly make so that it's going to keep me satisfied. Um, but, but, you know, they, they, honestly, most of the recipes in, in the book are not recipes that you, that you should make every day or, or will even want to make every day. Um, they're, they're things that are, that are going to be, you know, sort of more um, celebratory things and more, and more special treats. The book is The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, which is a New York Times bestseller, and it's available wherever books are sold. Kenji, we've run out of time, and I want to give our listeners your contact information. The website is KenjiLopezAlt.com. On Twitter, you can be found at The Food Lab, and on Facebook, The Food Lab Recipes. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy, or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. 
Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. And we're back to this HHTR flashback favorite, focusing on kitchen wisdom. My next guest is Dan Pashman, and I originally had a conversation with him in May of 2015. Let's have a listen. How we are touched sensually by the eating experience. And with me today is Dan Pashman. He is the James Beard Award nominated host of WYNC's Sporkful Food Podcast and the cooking channels You're Eating It Wrong, as well as the author of Eat More Better How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. Dan is also a contributor to NPR, Slate, BuzzFeed, and LA's KCRW. Welcome, Dan. You've been with us before, and I'm glad you're coming back to, to share some holiday goodness with us. Hey, Lisa. Yeah, it's great to be here. Let, let's talk about the tradition and connection that goes on through food, through eating, through communion and fellowship. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that I've actually been getting more into lately with the Sporkful podcast is, you know, it's, um, it, it is, it is sort of a universal language, I think, that we all kind of understand. Um, I think that we can sort of, you know, like wherever I go in the country or wherever I travel, whatever show I'm doing, whatever I'm talking about, you can always bond with people over food. You can always ask them what they like to eat and they'll be very happy to tell you, um, and so, you know, no matter how different someone may seem from you or how different their food may seem from you, you know, you may think that this food comes from far away and that it's, to you, strange and different. But when you start especially talking about holidays and the way that people and families come together to celebrate holidays, it really kind of is the same story repeated all over the world. Maybe the ingredients change, but the role that the food plays in the gathering is pretty much always the same. It's pretty universal. And this is a little bit of a departure for you from how you've approached food in the past, in that you really are a bit of a, a scientist and a chemist uh, in the way that you look at food. And, and, and so now you're, you're looking at it from what I glean from a much more psychological perspective. Yeah, to some extent, that's true. Yeah, I mean, we haven't, we haven't sort of... Uh, abandoned what I think, uh, you know, what we started off with, with the sporkful and what a lot of people still love, which is this sort of, uh, obsessive compulsive approach to analyzing the finer points of eating, um, and eating techniques in a way that, uh, you know, sort of our never ending pursuit for deliciousness, but we have sort of broadened the horizons of the show a bit. And, um, you know, for instance, uh, recently it was the Hindu holiday of Diwali, um, so we went, I went to Queens and I interviewed this Trinidadian woman who is Hindu who celebrates Diwali and cooked with her and learned about what she eats and cooks on that holiday. Um, that was really cool. Uh, we did a show for Ramadan where I went and uh, met up with a bunch of like Muslim cab drivers and, and was riding around cabs all over New York City and after JFK Airport as the sun was going down and they were all breaking their Ramadan fast for the day. Um, and that kind of stuff has been really fun too. So we haven't 
abandon what we were doing in the beginning, but, um, but we're, we're definitely broadening the scope a bit. And for those who don't know what Diwali is, it is the Hindu festival of lights. So this celebration is very colorful, very rich culturally. And in terms of food, it's out of sight, right? It's off the charts. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I, I, I've been – not that I pretend to be an innovator because, I mean, you know, there's over a billion people who, out there who really love Indian food. Um, but I've been getting more and more into Indian food, and there's just so much to explore there and so many different regional varieties, um, the, you know, so many different dishes that go beyond the sort of the handful of, of ones that have broken through into the American cultural mainstream so far. And, yeah, Diwali is delicious. It, it's, it's particularly a holiday that's known for sweets. Uh, and they make some delicious, amazing sweets that go great with coffee. And a lot of them have sort of like ground lentils, ground uh, chickpeas with sugar and, you know, very interesting textures. You know, stuff that's definitely different from some of the stuff I grew up eating. But, I, you know, to me, that's part of the fun. And that's sort of like one of the perks of the job is getting to eat new things all the time and experience new flavors. Major perk. And then in terms of Ramadan, I would say because the Muslim world has – uh, a very large reach that the culinary um, delights there are pretty fascinating, right? Yeah, I mean, and one of the things I learned in that show is that actually, really, there are not many foods that are considered the traditional foods for Ramadan. It's really, really, a lot of the show is about fasting. You know, with Ramadan, Muslims fast from sunrise to sunset um, because of the way the Muslim calendar works. Ramadan falls at different times of year, um, on different years, it sort of rotates around the calendar. So right now, in this past year, Ramadan was falling in June, around the longest day of the year. So if, if fasting is from sunrise to sunset on the longest day of the year for 30 straight days, um, it is intense. Yeah. And so a lot of what, what we learned about in that show was sort of the way that, that going through that difficult uh, experience brings... Muslims of different backgrounds together and brings families together. I interviewed some Muslim teenagers in New York about, they talked about how like during Ramadan, their parents don't yell at them as much and they have no curfew. They can go out as late as they want because they're, they sleep half the day. And so, you know, it's kind of this special time for them where the rules get relaxed and um, they love it for that reason. And, um, you know, so, so it, it, it's interesting though, whether I'm talking to Muslims about Ramadan or, or Hindus about Diwali or just good old, you know, white people in America, uh, as opposed to all those, the other wonderful kinds of people in America, like you talk about holidays, whether it's Thanksgiving or Diwali or Ramadan. And at the end of the day, it's really about people coming together and sitting together, families coming together um, and sharing a meal. And that's like such a universal story. And, you know, I think we're really talking about ritual, that, you know, in, in that ritual meal, there is a sacred space created in addition to these foods that are, you know, delicious and um, fulfilling and colorful. There's something about that communal process that strikes all these emotional chords that, that, that we've spoken of. Absolutely. I think that's totally right. I mean, I think that one of the things that I've found frustrating about the way food media has increasingly covers Thanksgiving, and this is kind of a larger issue with just the amount of media out there in the world, but there's, there's so much content out there that the only way that people can distinguish themselves is to say something different from what everyone else is saying. And that creates a pressure to constantly be saying 
you know, in the food world, that creates a pressure to constantly be coming up with new foods and new recipes. New, you know, here are six hot appetizers um, or whatever it is. And um, I think that creates a lot of undue anxiety for people. Like it makes people think like, oh, God, I have to – I guess I have to do something different from what I did last year at Thanksgiving because all these stupid websites are telling me that there are six new appetizers I need to, <laughs> to learn. You know, and, and, and people – and it makes people feel like inadequate. Like, oh, I guess I can't just cook the same thing I did last year. But like there is a real power in those rituals and in and in – Having those foods, especially the giant turkey, which doesn't get made very often, or stuffing, you know, a lot of the foods you eat at Thanksgiving, you don't eat very often either because they're complicated and time-consuming to make, or maybe it's a specialty of a, of a loved one or relative who you only get to see a couple times a year, and so, you know, you just, you love Aunt Patty's candy yams, and, and they're never as good when anyone else makes them, and having that sense memory of, eating that the same food every year with the same people at the same time to me is very beautiful and very powerful. And I would encourage people to, um, you know, to stick with those traditions when they feel good to you and not to feel like, uh, just because there's some listicle on the internet that suggests there's something new out there that you need to be, you know, chasing down that rabbit hole. And in terms of the sense memory, one of one of the interesting points that comes to my mind as you're as you're sharing this is in positive psychology, the recalling of positive emotion or memory can help actually change our mood in the present. So if if someone is having a hard time, let's say during the holidays, maybe there's the absence of family, maybe they're in another part of the world, or maybe that member is no longer um, here. That that recalling of the memory and the rituals. The sights, the scents, the, 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 you know, the, the smells, the textures, the sounds of these rituals can be a way for us to really focus and become more joyful when things may be a little bit challenging. Absolutely. You know, this happened, it's funny, it happened with me, uh, with my wife just the other day. Um, I've recently discovered this, this sauce called Maggie sauce. Um, it's, it's, it, there's different varieties around the world. I, like I the know Maggie. Maggie. Okay. <laughs> it, it's like changed my life. I tell my kids it's called magic sauce and I just try to put it in everything and it's amazing. Um, and, um, my wife had made this cauliflower soup that she grew up eating that her mom made that her grandmother made and she made this cauliflower soup. And I had this Maggie sauce lying around the house and she was heating up some leftovers and she grabbed the Maggie sauce and sprinkled some into the cauliflower and stirred it around. And she was like, oh my God, I'm having this powerful memory and I'm just remembering because her, her uh, parents and grandparents are uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe and where Maggie sauce is very popular. And she said, I'm, I'm just having this memory that I'm remembering that when my grandmother made this soup, she would sprinkle a little Maggie sauce uh. on the top and mix it around. And her, my, her, her, my wife's mother didn't do that because they have a kosher home and Maggie sauce isn't kosher, but the grandmother's home wasn't kosher, so they, they did it with Maggie sauce. And uh, we sprink she sprinkled this, and she said it was so powerful and it reminded her of her grandparents, you know, and um, it is amazing the way that, you know, a smell or a taste can do that for you. Marcel Proust wrote about that with Madeleine's. 
You know huh. that 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 he that the taste or the smell and the taste of the Madelines evoked some memory of his grandmother who had baked these incredible scrumptious buttery cookies for him. But that is another point. We're going to go to a break. And for those who are not in the know, and Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, that Maggie, it's like in a little shaker bottle, and it's yellow and red or or reddish orange, tomato red, and you shake you shake it right. It's like a yeah. dropper. Yeah, it's like a dropper, um, right? It comes in. I actually managed to find the huge industrial size bottle because I love it so much. But yeah, you can find it online. You can find it at any kind of store. Uh, they have. There's one kind of Maggie that's made in China. There's one that's made in Germany. There's one that's made in South America, and they're all pretty different from each other. But you can order them online and check them out. It has MSG in it, which I happen to love and think that it's delicious. You know, I'm a big proponent of MSG. Um, <laughs> Not the headache, though. Well, well, uh, Lisa, the science on on uh, on that is dubious at best. Uh, oh, really? Oh. Yes, there's a, there's a perception that ma- that MSG causes this headache, but the actual research is very questionable. And uh, you know, it's certainly it's used very, very widely in in Asian in Asia without any ill effect. So I think that maybe it's more an issue. My personal speculative theory is that it's an issue of of when it's used too heavily. Maybe it gives certain people headaches, but I think it's also somewhat psychosomatic and somewhat like used in moderation. It's okay. But anyway. Maybe maybe a little magical thinking sprinkled in there. We're going to go to a break. And to (laughs) learn more about the fabulous work of Dan Pashman, you can go to Sporkful.com. On Facebook, that page is Sporkful. We're going to need to head out to the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if... Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to this HHTR flashback favorite. Let's return to the conversation that I had with Dan Pashman in May of 2015. And with me is Dan Pashman. He is the host of the Sporkful podcast at WNYC and the Cooking Channel Show. 
entitled You're Eating It Wrong. And also, he's got a great book out called Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. And he is truly the master of deliciousness. So, Dan, we were talking about all these different cultural experiences that you have through the show and the melange of flavors and products that people use in their cooking. I want to talk about how we, as the melting pot of the world, can own our holiday experience and rock it through our own ethnicities and different flavors and make it more meaningful than just the ubiquitous, you know, reindeer and Santa Claus. Yeah, I mean, and this is something that, that we that I learned a lot about and put in together. We did a two-part Sporkful podcast uh, Thanksgiving special that airs. Um, it's going to go up the week or maybe is already up. Uh, it's the, it comes out the week before Thanksgiving. And, you know, we asked all of our listeners – how do you know it's Thanksgiving in your home? And I was so struck by just the variety and the diversity of the responses. And we had a Puerto Rican guy in Kansas City call in and say he, you know, he can smell uh, turkey that's stuffed with uh, mofongo, and the, the plantains are cooking right next to the turkey. We had a woman whose you know family was her parents are from India, but she was born in Zambia, and they came to America. They had never seen a turkey. They, they had no idea how to cook something so big. So they started their first Thanksgiving, they just had chicken because they were too intimidated <laughs> by turkey. But they still seasoned it with a lot of Indian-style spices. Um, and I think that that's so cool. And look, you know, I think that, that, that you know, people say, well, what is American food? I mean, to me, that's American food. You know, it, it's, it's uh, <laughs> you know, in a sort of, this is kind of, may sound like an odd analogy, but like, I've been thinking a lot about lately about the way that foods come to America and are assimilated into food culture and then eventually are co-opted and, 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 and blended. Like, I, you know, my family was Jewish. They came from Eastern Europe. So, like, my ancestors brought bagels with them. And now on St. Patrick's Day, an Irish holiday, many bagel stores will dye the bagels green. Yep. <laughs> which, like, you know, is a little weird. But – and probably not how my ancestors envisioned bagels. But – like, I think it's really cool. Like, here you have this one, you know, these two immigrant customs that have been mashed up in this kind of quirky, fun way. Where else would you find green bagels? Where else in the world but in America? So I think the holidays are a great time for those kinds of, of uh, cultural mashups. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I think that kind of thing is going to continue as, as more people from different parts of the world come and, and as they're their approaches to food are welcomed and become more a part of the cultural mainstream and are assimilated. I think you're going to see more and more of these uh, food media pieces that are going to come out every Thanksgiving going to be about like, here's how to make an Indian style roast turkey. Here's how to make, or here, it'll be, and then after that it'll be, here's how to make a Punjabi, a Punjabi roast turkey versus a Gujarati roast turkey. Um, and you're going to, you know, and it won't just be, here's an Asian style roast turkey. It'll be, here's a Vietnamese roast turkey. And here's a, uh, Chinese versus Japanese versus South Korean versus North Korea. Like we can cover it all. And there's so many variations and I think it's all great. So like instead of Peking duck, you know, you can get like Peking turkey. Oh yeah. That'd be great. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Yeah. Sizzle that skin. <laughs> totally. Oh my God. Yeah. That'd be yeah really we, good. We've got a challenge in my house. My, you know, my, my house, for those of you who don't know, as, as is Dan's house, is a house of foodies. Like, we like to eat, and my kids are quite creative in the kitchen. So we've got a challenge on for this Thanksgiving to make turkey tamales with the leftovers. Now, none of us know how to do this. 
But we went to our local like like burrito stand where they make like tamales as well. And we asked the cooks, you know, we said like, what do you do? And they gave us tips for how to do this. And this is exactly what you're talking about. You know, it's how the hybrid becomes normalized in cooking culture. And this is what makes this country so great. One of zillions of things, but the food thing is, is, is on for me. Absolutely. No, I mean, that's food, food leads the way. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people in America uh, like certainly when I, when I was growing up, we didn't really have Korean and Vietnamese restaurants. We mostly had Chinese and Japanese. And, you know, I think that for, but for a lot of people, I think there are a lot of people in America who probably eat some kind of, who, who, who've spent more, t- like their first or their predominant interaction with an immigrant culture is through the food. Yeah. Like there are a lot of people in America who don't know very many Chinese immigrants, but they know Chinese food. Now, look, is the Chinese food those people are probably eating the most authentic, quote unquote, Chinese food? Probably not. But it is still their experience of that food. And they probably like it a lot. And, you know, I, do, I am a believer that even if, even if it's not the most authentic food, uh, it's, it's still an entry point. Like it's an entry point to a new culture. And it breaks down barriers between people and it, it creates a level of familiarity or common ground that maybe wasn't there before. And, you know, you, you talk about growing up in a Jewish home. I, too, uh, grew up in a Jewish home, and I still believe that Sunday night dinner is Chinese food. <laughs> you know, totally. that's, a cult- that's a cultural thing. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, you you t- you talk about um, sound in some of your upcoming shows. Let's talk about how sound affects the cooking and eating process because this is an interesting angle. Yeah, I mean, this is something where we're working on a future episode of the Sporkful podcast about this. Um, we talked; it's going to be partly about the sounds that your foods make when you cook them, and partly about the sounds that your foods make when you eat them. And partly about how the sounds around you affect the eating process. But all of these things are tied together. Um, there's been a lot of really interesting research lately about how, um, you know, eating, eating is a holistic experience. And, and people just talk about taste. They talk about your tongue. I think that, you know, most of us have some basic understanding that smell is a big part of taste. Like you have a, if you have a cold, you don't taste things as well because your nose is stuffed. But it, and actually, we're learning now it goes much beyond that, um, that things like the color of the plates can affect how you perceive the food. The music that's being played, when music is very loud in the background, it, uh, it dulls your taste, your, your, your flavor perception because you are inclined, because it's like your brain can't process, your brain is distracted by the noise and can't focus on the, the flavor. Um, wow. Yeah, you know, and even like um, there's this guy Charles Spence in England, this researcher. He has found that um, when when low pitched music is when low pitched sort of tonal ambient music is is pitched is piped in, uh, food you eat will taste more bitter, and when high pitched music is piped in, then food you eat will taste more sweet. And so, really, your your the experience of eating is a, is a multi sensory experience in, in a way that we're only still just starting to fully understand. 
So what I think I hear you saying is that when we're sitting around the table and we might have smooth jazz, for example, playing, you know, low in the background or classical music versus um, house music or disco, that the how we taste, how we perceive that food is altered. That's right. That's exactly right. That's really cool. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Crazy. And what about lighting? What about if you're sitting in a room with people with whom you feel very connected and resonant, and maybe it's family, but you're not feeling so? Maybe there's a little bit of, you know, contentious energy in the room. How does that affect the eating experience? I mean, I can guess, but, you know, you're the expert here. Right. Well, you know, to tell you the truth, I'm not, I haven't done as much study on, the, on how lighting affects things. So I, you know, I, I can't say for sure about that, you know, but I, I, I do think that, um, you know, to some extent, you know, when you're, everything feeds into everything in a sense. And it's like, if you're with a bunch of people and there's a lot, sort of a lot of, let's say there's some tension at the table or maybe not everyone's getting along with everyone, you know, you're probably going to be distracted. You're probably not likely to taste the food you're eating as much. If you're in a bad mood, it might not taste as good as if you're in a good mood and having a lot of fun. Um, so, you know, I, I think that all these things definitely feed into each other. We are out of time. It is always a pleasure to have you on the show, Dan. To learn more about Dan Pashman, please visit Sporkful.com. On Facebook, that page is Sporkful, and the Twitter handle is at the Sporkful. And once again, Dan Pashman is the host of the Sporkful podcast at WNYC as well as the cooking channel show, You're Eating It Wrong. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on this HHTR flashback favorite. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my guests today, Kenji Lopez-Alt and Dan Pashman, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.